Well, you've gotten very quiet, so I guess I should say something. Well, the Dharma talk will be given by the one-year-old this evening. She's probably far more wiser things about the nature of bliss and union and oneness than I'll ever have to say. Of course, you'll forget. That's the sad thing. And then spend a lifetime trying to get back there. Such as the irony of being in this mortal coil. So, um, can you hear me okay? My voice can taper off. You can't hear me? We need a little more volume if you can without distortion. Possible. How's that? Any better? Okay, so um, I want to talk about the body tonight, um, both in context of uh, the mystery of the body and also the, the body as a vehicle or as context for practice, as for our mindfulness practice. So I have some interesting little tidbits about the body that I thought were interesting enough to share. The, when I heard when I first heard this, a friend of mine just read this list, and uh, it just always puts me into this state of perplexed awe, thinking of what this body is and how amazing it is and how mysterious it is and how it just does its thing all by itself without any of our kind of controlling it, without without us getting in the way, messing it up. Can you imagine if we decided? If we had to decide when we beat our hearts, you know, breathe, you know, it gets so complicated. It's so tiring. Okay, breathe. Okay, heart. Come on. Okay, ventricle. Like a rap song, you know. So the average adult is made up of a hundred trillion cells. A hundred trillion cells are inside your body. It's a lot to keep track of. And if you unwound and joined DNA from the genes of those cells, they would f- all of that material would fit into an ice cube. But the string would stretch 80 million miles. Isn't that amazing? 80 million miles just in the genes of your cells. That's the Levi's and the Wranglers and, you know, <laughs> all of that. We have enough iron in our bodies to make a single nail. So, you know, if you get short, you know, if you're doing a, a job at home, you know, and you can't find that one tack. You can do a little extraction. And Each person has a unique tongue print, just like a unique fingerprint. So we can all recognize, all oh, stick our tongues out. And go, oh, yeah, I, 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 know, I know you. So... In this next sentence that I'm going to speak, 50,000 of those beloved cells in your body will die. Amazing, 50,000 just in that one sentence. But the good news is, in the next sentence, 50,000 will be created. That's a lot of work. You wonder why you're tired? That's that's exhausting, (laughs) just thinking about it. (laughs) So, um, So we have these... Miraculous, mysterious, magical um, bodies, body clothes, as, as Mary Oliver puts them, puts it, that we inhabit for a while. You know, we take birth, we grow, and then we shed this this body, 
and uh, whoever the we is, and whoever, wherever we go. But while we're here, we uh, get to inhabit them, explore them, feel them, sense them, enjoy them, suffer with them, feel them age. But we mostly don't turn to them and go, wow, this is a really amazing phenomena. You know, amazing form, amazing uniqueness, amazing feat of evolution. So the second piece about, that I want to speak to is about the, that we can use that, that, that curiosity, that wonder, as a, as a way to support our own embodiment, to support our practice of mindfulness, because the body is, is really the, the only vehicle we have. You know, it's hard to practice being mindful in this lamp, you know, or in your, you know, in the car tires of your car, you know. And when we're in this body, you know, just like this evening, when if you were present, you know, present to the beautiful rain, the smells, you know, we get to taste the preciousness, the beauty, the fragility of life. This is from Mary Oliver writing about after a storm. She says, A black water pond, the tossed waters have settled after a night of rain. I dip my cupped hands. I drink a long time. It tastes like stone, like leaves, like fire. It falls cold into my body, waking the bones. I hear them deep inside me whispering, Oh, what is that beautiful thing? that just happened. What is that beautiful thing that just happened? She drank some cold water. That was the beautiful thing that just happened. You know, we take lots of drinks of cold water and we don't generally write poems about it. But when we're really present and alive, really in our senses, it's like, wow, what did just happen? When you hear the sound of the rain, it's like a symphony. You, know, you see the, the colors of these turkeys that wander around the property and these males, you know, and they're displaying their full plumage, you know, iridescent feathers. You know, it's a miracle. But it's also a funny thing to have a body. You know, these kind of funny appendages, you know, that we walk around all looking a little odd and cookie and we sort of hobble around on two legs, you know, and stuff, as Jack likes to say, we stuff a lot of dead plants and animals into one end and it, you know, dribbles around, it comes out the other end and we have these appendages that help us get to move to get to put more dead plants and animals in. You know, we mate a little and we run after each other and, you know, it's a funny thing having a body. We have these big brains that think, you know, we can't stop the thinking, you know. Don't quite know what to do with ourselves. <laughs> you know, and we come into this into this world like this young one in the back, you know, and we you know, we didn't say, Well, I'd like that kind of you know, that light skinned, dark skinned, you know, tall, big boned, you know, strong muscular body. No, you just show up. You don't get you don't you don't get a catalogue of birth and you go, Yeah, I'll take that one. That looks really cute, you know, that one looks really hunky and you get whatever you get, you know. There's a certain surrender and a selfless and the kind of cosmic humor to it all. So we get to wear these body clothes and we get to come into relationship with them. 
and as we practice, we also come to learn how to respect them, how to be present to them, how to love them, how to take care of them. Jim Rohn once wrote, Take care of your body. It's the only place you have to live. <laughs> so at the time of the Buddha, um, in the Indian subcontinent at the time, there was this very strong view, which is not, you know, it's been pervasive in other religions too, that the body was an obstacle to freedom, to awakening, to freeing the spirit. You know, the, the, so there was a lot of ascetic practices of mortifying the body, of denying the body, punishing the body as a way to release essence, soul, spirit, true self, whatever language we like to use. And that, 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 that school of thought was around for a long time, probably some millennia. Um, and then um, sometime sort of at the... Oh, you know, I'm not sure exactly because I'm not a scholar, but you know, somewhere between 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th century, there was this growing reaction to this life-denying uh, relationship to the body. And there was, a, there was a spiritual view that emerged that saw everything as an aspect of true nature. Everything is an aspect of the divine. And that if everything was, 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 had Buddha nature, then our bodies also had Buddha nature. And if our bodies had Buddha nature, then why do we have to treat them with remorse or, or with, with aversion or with, with revulsion? So this is from um, a Hindu tantric text. So the, the tantra movement gave birth to this rise of the, seeing the body as a temple and as a sacred place, both in the Hindu tradition and in the Buddhist tradition. The tantra movement, I think, was very fused as the yogic traditions in India were very fused for many, many centuries. So this is from the Yoga Vashista. It said, For the ignorant person, this body is the source of endless suffering. But to the wise person, this body is the source of infinite delight. For the wise person, its loss is no loss at all. But while it persists, it is completely a source of delight for the wise person. Since the body affords, affords the wise person the experience of sound, sight, taste, touch, and smell, as well as prosperity and friendship, it brings him great gain. And in another uh, text, this is a Buddhist tantric text, it says, to renounce the sense objects, which is another thing, we renounce the body, so therefore you renounce the senses. To renounce the sense objects is to torture oneself by asceticism. Do not do it. When you see form, look. Similarly, listen to sounds. Inhale scents. Taste delicious flavors. Feel textures. Use the objects of the five senses. You will quickly attain supreme Buddhahood. Notice how, and notice how that feels in your body. When, when you feel the body honored and the, the senses honored in that way, it's like, wow, this is a different relationship to body, like really honoring, valuing, appreciating. You know, I think what's happening in the in the West with all this, you know, increase in interest in Buddhism and Hinduism and yoga is is also a similar. I think when it first came over, the it mirrored what happened in Asia. There was more that sense of the life denying attitude towards the body, you know, and particularly as yoga has become so um, 
prolifically popular, there's also been a more this quality of honoring and respecting and using the body as a vehicle for practice, vehicle for uh, awakening. I just taught, we just finished teaching actually, a group of us, we taught a, an 18-month training for yoga teachers in mindfulness, integrating the practices of mindfulness of yoga, int- integrating the traditions of yoga and Buddhism, which in the you know two or three millennia ago were actually not one, not not separate traditions, and so it was actually very um, radical. And it was the first time it's ever been done, as far as we know. This these bring together these traditions for such a long period of time. It was very profound to see all these this room full of yoga teachers and uh, really using the body. People who really knew how to live and embody. And, 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 and use the body as a, as a profound vehicle for, for presence and attention. So, and I think that's partly a reaction to, you know, how disembodied we've become. You know, we, I think we're mostly a very disembodied culture because of the speed that we live at, because of the mentality that we, we, we drown ourselves in thinking. And um, so we, we kind of lose touch with this, you know, because of the speed and the... the the amount of thoughts that we think. There's a story that I sometimes read about this guy who died on the New York subway. He was dressed on his way to work. He died in the morning commute and he spent the day riding the subway all day before somebody realized he was dead. You know, it's like we're not really in our bodies and we're not really that aware of each other's bodies. You know. So the Buddha, in, in being part of that milieu of um, asceticism, tried that for six years, you know, as you probably know. He, he did various kinds of ascetic practice, thinking that was the way to nibbana, to freedom. And all he got was very thin and very weak. And got so weak, he almost died. And he said, That's, this can't be the way. My mind isn't any freer than when I started. Six years of this intense mortification. So he developed a middle way between sensual indulgence and asceticism, which we now have. And he, his vehicle was mindfulness centered in the body. That's what he, when he sat down his night of enlightenment, he trained his mind to be present to his body, to his mind, to his heart. He said, all that we need to learn can be learned within this fathom-long body, however long a fathom is. It's about six feet. All that we need to learn can be learned within this body. It's quite a teaching, you know. We think all we need to learn is on Wikipedia, you know, or it's on the net, or it's somewhere, you know. But here, my God, is it really? Can I learn something from this? What do you mean? Wow, what a concept. This is our home. This is where it's all happening, our experience. Where else are we going to learn it? You know? So he said, there is one thing that when cultivated and regularly practiced leads to deep spiritual intention to peace, to mindfulness, clear comprehension, to vision and knowledge, to a happy life here and now, see if you want any of these things, to a happy life here and now, to the culmination of wisdom and awakening. What is this one thing when regularly practiced? It's mindfulness centered in the body. So um, that's quite a statement he's saying, you know, that we can develop peace of mind, freedom, ease, all of that clarity. My first teacher, I just remind you of this, my first teacher was this man called Sangharakshita, 
who was sort of self-taught Buddhist monk, one of the first Western Buddhist monks he ordained in, uh, during the war, Second World War in the 40s, and took on mindfulness of body as a very serious practice. And um, it was quite beautiful to watch him walk. He would never, ever rush. He'd just walk with incredible intentionality and focus. Not, not tight, just very, very present. And he was a great role model for me. He said he could tell somebody he could tell somebody's level of spiritual maturity by the way they they walked across the lawn. You could just tell that the quality of embodiment and presence by the way that they walked. So the Buddha gave this wonderful simile of um, pra- how we how we can practice mindfulness in our day to day lives. The simile of um, this man carrying a hot bowl of oil on his head. You may have heard this story. And he's walking through a marketplace. He's been told to walk through the marketplace with this boiling hot bowl of oil on his head. And um, he's to follow this beautiful dancing maiden through the marketplace. But if he spills as much as a drop of oil as a man behind him walking with a drawn sword about to chop off his head... So, um, so you know, he gets really mindful <laughs> walking through this, this, uh, this marketplace with this beautiful woman in front of him and the crowds around him and this guy with a sword behind him. Imagine yourself in that situation, you know, pressure's on. You might really drop into your body, you know, feel your feet, you know, and just walk with, a, you know, like a Tai Chi master through the crowd. So that's how he's suggesting we practice. You know, when you're walking downtown San Francisco, you know, or wherever you walk around in your life, to to walk with that sense of presence. You know, I often think about when watching uh, Obama before his inauguration, and he's walking down whatever that room is, you know, before he goes out to see the greet the crowds, and he's walking like someone with incredible presence and mindfulness, and embodiment. You know, he's about to talk to, you know, millions of people, and just this beautiful presence. There's another story similar to that of when um, King Ashoka, who was the king who uh, united India at some point, several centuries after the Buddha, and then... um, one at the end of some battle, uh, he was supposed to. Be, it was supposed to be a very. Um, his reign was very bloody to, to unite the kingdoms, and uh, and he he got very weary of the bloodshed and the, and the futility of war. And at the end of this one particular battle, he's surveying the the battlefield and all this horrible carnage and, and waste of life, and and uh, he sees this young this this young monk walking across the battlefield very mindfully, not carefully careful not to. You know, harm anybody as he's tiptoeing through the, the scene with incredible presence. And uh, there's apparently the combination of, of the, the king's weariness of, 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 the, of bloodshed and seeing this, this beautiful expression of presence embodied in this monk. He decides to follow the monk and um, start practicing, became a Buddhist, and, and is what actually really what allowed the Buddhist teachings to spread. At, the time, at that time, Buddhism was very, very small. Uh, but he converted to Buddhism and, and 
began this reign of uh, great Buddhist um, uh, kind of golden era. So the experience of the body is always in the present. We're encouraged to be in the present. Are you in the present right now? What tells you you're in the present? I bet it's one of your five senses. Probably because you're hearing something, or you're feeling your body, or you're thinking something, which in Buddhism is a sense. You're smelling something, tasting something. What's the other one? Seeing. You're seeing. The five senses are always in the present moment. So since we struggle so much to be present, right, how how many breaths do you follow before you check out? Before you go into the upstairs room of the house. (laughs) So this is from Diane Ackerman, who is a wonderful writer. She wrote a wonderful book called Natural History of the Senses. It's a very beautiful and juicy book about these, there's a mysteriousness and the, the, the beauty of living in our senses. Highly poetic. She says, It is both our panic and our privilege to be, a mortal, to be mortal and senseful. We live on the leash of our senses. Although they enlarge us, they also limit and restrain us. But how beautifully. How beautifully. So... Here we are, somewhere like Spirit Rock, or you take a walk in nature. How many of you could take walks outside in nature? Anybody here goes outside? Yeah, good. Happy to hear it. I'm with my people. <laughs> you know, I was just doing this retreat last week at Spirit Rock, and at every Dharma talk, you know, there's, we sit before the Dharma talk, and there's a little silence, and, and the frogs would always start you know, chirping, you know, and it's like they were giving the Dharma talk. It was just so beautiful. Uh, the crickets would start, you know, chiming in. and So just think about the, the, the richness that happens through your senses, the sounds that you hear, in nature sounds, music, sound of beautiful voices, the sights that you see, even just driving here today, just walking through the parking lot, you know, the, the beautiful moist leaves and the, the deers feeding on the, in the meadow and the, the light coming through the trees. And the smells, like the smells today, I love it when it rains because you get this woody, musty smell. You can smell the, the flowers, the scents of jasmine. They just kind of, you know, apparently we swell... We smell. Smell was the first, was the primary sense organ. When we, you know, as when we were living in the water, uh, you know, smell is the primary way that we detected food. And when we moved onto land, sense was the primary organ. And it was out of the sense, out of the smell organ, that uh, we developed the brain. So the brain, so the smell is 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 related very much uh, to its early development early development of the brain. So our sense, when we smell something, you know, it takes us back. It, our sense of smell is very um, sort of reptilian almost. It takes us to, it's tapped right into the limbic part of the brain. And so when we smell s- smells, it's, it, it's why they're so evocative. You know, that's why we may get a whiff of something. It reminds us of, you know, we, we open an old musty book in a library 
and it takes us back to being, you know, six years old in a school, you know, in, in grammar school somewhere, or, you know, it's just this very rich, evocative, powerful sense still. Talking of smells, we have a lot to learn from being around animals. You know, I think we have about five or 9,000 receptors in our nose, and dogs and cats have about 50,000. It's no wonder they're sniffing all the time. When my friend takes her German shepherd Jackie out for a walk, Jackie sniffs at curb, rock, and tree and soon senses that what, what dog has been there, its age, sex, mood, health, and what it passed by for. For Jackie, it's like reading the gossip column of the morning newspaper. The lane reveals its invisible trails to her nose as it, as it doesn't to her owner. She will add her scent to the quilt of scents on a tuft of grass, and the next dog that comes by will read, in the aromatic hieroglyphics, hieroglyphics of the neighborhood, Jackie, 5 p.m., young female, on hormone therapy because of a bladder ailment. Well-fed, cheerful, seeks a friend. (laughs) It beats Match.com, apparently. So we have these, you know, we have these bodies, we have these sense organs, and it's such a wonderful doorway. It's, 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 It's an easy invitation to mindfulness. You know, sometimes we're mindful and we have to be mindful of the, ple- the unpleasant, the difficult, the painful. The... But so much in this world is, is beautiful and alluring. You know, nature particularly is so alluring, invites uh, attention you know, if, we, if we have the presence of mind to, to listen. This is from Mary Oliver and from a poem. I love the title of this poem called Hummingbird Pauses at the Trumpet Vine. Who doesn't love roses, and who doesn't love the lilies of the black ponds floating like flocks of tiny swans? And of course the flaming trumpet vine, where the hummingbird comes like a small green angel to soak his dark tongue in happiness. And who doesn't want to live with the brisk motor of his heart singing, like a Schubert, and his eyes working and working like those days of rapture by Van Gogh in Arles? So we have our senses, we have this body to explore, that's like the, the structure, and then we have what the body does, our activities. You know, the Buddha said, to exalted us to be mindful in every activities. I think of, of, of all the instructions that the Buddha gave, this was one that really speaks to our lives as as uh, householders, you know, he gave teachings to monks and nuns, and he gave teachings to householders. And his teachings to monks and nuns were more meditation-oriented because that's really what they were doing most of the time, you know, sitting around meditating. But we don't mostly do that. We mostly have lives and children and relationships and work and activities and plans and projects and. So it's a different kind of mindfulness practice, you know. We might talk a lot about meditation practice here, but you know, frankly, what percentage of your day is is your meditation practice? One fiftieth, if you're lucky. If it was one fiftieth, that would be sitting half an hour a day. So if you sit one fifty minutes a day, it's a hundredth 
one hundredth of your day. It's not very much, is it? <laughs> Even though it feels like a lot. So maybe I got my maths wrong, but it's it's um, it's a small percentage. So it, behoo- it asks the question: well, What are we doing the rest of our time? You know, are we using our life, our, our day-to-day life, as a vehicle to be mindful, to wake up? And the body is the great doorway, the great vehicle for that. You know, as we're you know walking and talking and resting and cleaning and bathing and eating and shopping and cooking and working and driving and and that's all before nine o'clock. <laughs> you know, are we present? Are we noticing? Are we feeling? Are we sensing? Are we available? Are we cognizant? You know, meditation, the simple way to understand meditation is to be doing something and knowing that you're doing it. So it doesn't matter what you're doing. You know, there's millions of different objects of meditation, a breath and body and sounds and mantra and lights and deities and all kinds of things. They're all meditation. So we can apply the same principle to our lives. You know, Driving and knowing that you're driving as opposed to driving and talking on your cell phone while eating your breakfast burrito <laughs> is not that mindful. Driving and knowing that you're driving, just sensing your body, driving, looking, listening, relaxing, is a meditation practice. You know, eating your, you know, your whatever you eat in the morning, your granola or your bagel or whatever. You know, taking five minutes to eat that. Eating and just simply being with eating, knowing you're eating, that is a meditation. You know, people always ask me, it's probably the question that I get most asked. Um, well, I like to be mindful, I like to, you know, I want to practice, but I don't have any time. You know, I've got kids, and I've got a full-time job, you know, I'm going to school, and, and I say, well, you know, do you, do you bathe? You know? <laughs> do you eat? <laughs> do you drive? Do you, you know, do you exercise? Do you walk the dog? Do you, you know, do you rest in bed? Do you, you know, there's a lot of things we do that we can use as a vehicle for Cultivating attention, cultivating presence, cultivating awareness, mindfulness. Right? Sounds pretty mundane and ordinary. It doesn't sound as sort of juicy and esoteric as you know, meditating, you know, on bliss. But you know, we should be real and question how much we meditate on bliss. So, so we have plenty of times to practice mindfulness. So why, I'm going to ask you to just reflect on one thing that you could commit to being mindful of this week that you don't normally practice being mindful of. You know, like like every, time, every day you take a shower. Hopefully it's more than once a week, but, you know. <laughs> or every time that you walk the dog. Or every time you do the dishes or unload the dishwasher. Instead of rushing through it, seeing it as a chore, seeing it as like, oh, I'm just going to use this time to think about my work project. No, I'm just going to be really present. Five minutes, ten minutes, twenty minutes. Notice what happens when you do that. It actually shifts the quality of our consciousness. Just the intention to turn, just the intention to be present, turning, making that conscious volitional shift to awareness, that in itself is quite a revolutionary act. So mindfulness of the body, 
This from the Buddha says, the yogi acts as the meditator acts, clearly knowing when eating, drinking, consuming food, tasting. He acts clearly knowing when defecating and urinating. See, there's no rest in the bathroom. <laughs> he clearly knows when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and keeping silent. So in the, in the bathrooms in Bodh Gaya, where I used to do these retreats, knowing about this teaching about being mindful while you're defecating and urinating, um, there was uh, two signs that I liked. One was pee here now. <laughs> you know, if you're going to do it, you may as well do it here. And then the second one was this is the best place to let go. <laughs> so I, on my wilderness retreat, sometimes I, you know, people pee in the woods, and I ask them. I say, see if you notice whether you pee on an in-breath or an out-breath. Try it. It's very interesting. Of course, you probably won't be able to pee because you're so you're so tight. Is it in-breath or out-breath? Okay. So we have our bodies. We have our breath. Breath also available. We talk a lot about the breath. You know, it's it's a great refuge. The body and the breath are one. It said we inhale billions of atoms that end up as heart cells, kidney cells, and brain cells, every breath. Every moment, we're inhaling billions of atoms. That's a lot of atoms. And you know that atoms are mostly space. So it's such a mystery, you know. Out of the air, somehow, these building blocks, these structures, these light energy, whatever atoms are, you know, become part of your kidney and your bladder. You know. We breathe about 23,000 times a day. How many breaths do you notice? One, two, 20? The Buddha didn't have that much access to scientific studies, but we blink almost a similar amount of times as we do breathe. We blink about 20,000 times a day. So now you're all going to get suddenly very conscious of blinking. <laughs> it's right, you, know, you, t- you, t- you mention something and then the, the, the mind goes to it and suddenly like, God, I'm blinking all the time. <laughs> Didn't know I blink so much. <laughs> so that can be, I, I've been playing with this since I read this, like mindfulness of blinking. Every time I blink, I, I, I use it as a way to come back to to presence. Oh yeah. There's blinking and there's the knowing of blinking. Mindfulness is the knowing capacity of mind, the self-recollecting knowing quality. We're not just blinking and we're brainless, we're blinking and we're knowing that we're blinking. So in the... um, in the, the Satipatthana Sutta, which is one of the core um, suttas or body of teachings that the Buddha gave, the, the, where this tradition of mindfulness and vipassana comes from, one of the uh, one of the the insight practices was to pay attention to the thirty-two parts of the body. I guess in that time in India, that was how they dissected the body. You know, skin, bones, pus, blood, bile, phlegm, you know, all those different hair, skin. 
So, um, so there's a meditation where you go through and you contemplate these these uh, these parts of the body. Again, at the time, there was this understanding, and this this is really more of a monastic practice. Monastic practice, I think. The idea was to um, to lessen the attachment to the body. We have so much identification and attachment to the body. And the point of the practice was to see the body as more as an impersonal process. Because like everything, it grows, it gets it's born, gets, grows old, and decays and dies. And the more attached we are to it, the more we suffer. So that was the point of these practices. So it was it, 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 the translation is reflection on the 32 parts, 32 unbeautiful parts of the body. So I've reframed this because I don't think that that particular translation is very useful. Um, it has slightly, it has more mm, more negative translations that I won't go into. But um, I like to reflect on this practice as the 32 mysterious parts of the body. Because in the spirit that I mentioned earlier, that, that each part of the body is a mystery. And I think for us in our time, given that there's so much stuff about bodies, either we're not in our bodies or there's so much hatred of the body, so much rejection of the body, so much pushing of the body, there's so much overriding the body, there's so much stuff around body image and body type and weight and looks, and that most people have some kind of negative relationship to the body. It's not good enough, it's not, it's not strong enough, it's not beautiful enough, it's not thin enough, it's not, you know, whatever the story is. And I think we need, you know, we need a different language to become re-enamored and re- to fall back in love with our bodies so we take care of them, so we treasure them, we cherish them, and we use them as a support for our practice. So I'm going to go through some of the, the 32 parts. So one of the parts is blood, being aware of our blood, being aware of this amazing life force in the body. Um, Osbert Sitwell talked about blood as the fragile scarlet tree we carry within us. Isn't that beautiful? The fragile scarlet tree. And it starts with these two roots down here, grows up, branches out. The fragile scarlet tree we carry within us. Every day, your body gives birth to 100 billion red blood cells. 100 billion red blood cells are created by your body every day to support oxygen moving around the body. Isn't that amazing? So if you're tired in the morning, you know, you can say you've had a hard night. You know, you're creating a lot of blood cells. <laughs> and they only live 120 days. So we have to keep producing them. And it does it all by itself. That's what's so amazing. Mysterious. Then we have this organ of skin, the largest organ. We shed 600,000 particles of skin every hour. So while you've been here, you've, shed, you've each shed a million particles of skin. So we'd like some extra volunteers to help with the cleanup tonight. Just to, <laughs> The vacuuming is getting a little, you know. And of course, you know most of the dust in your house is, is, comes from this skin, you know. You could kind of stick it back on, you know, if you're really attached, you know, but it doesn't really work. It's so interesting that we, you know, we love and cherish the skin and the hair. It's so beautiful. And we powder it and you know, put creams on it and, you know, give it, you know, all these treatments and Botox. And, you know. and then when it falls off, it's like, ugh, it's a little. 
Take it away. It's gross. Nails, hair, you know. It's such, it's such interesting. This, this is me, and I love it, and I cherish it, and it's so good. And then it falls off like, take it away. So in, our, in an average life, we shed 105 pounds of skin. Isn't that wild? Fortunately, we grow, we regrow our skin once a month. We grow it back once a month. Our stomach, another stomach, another one of these 32 parts. Our stomach makes new lining every five days. And our liver, one of the biggest, most complex, and most self-generating of livers. Now when they give liver transplants, they don't give a whole liver. They only give people parts of liver. Because the liver grows. It just creates, recreates itself. Our liver, the body makes a new liver every six weeks. Have you ever seen liver? It's quite large. I used to work in a butcher store, and I, you know, we had to work with these, these, um, these ox livers. You know, they were like massive, like every six weeks from from grass. You know, from grass you'd make these big livers. It's completely mysterious. Or our bones, another one of the thirty-two parts. You know, these hard stuff, these knuckles and whatever this is, wrist and ankle and ribs and teeth, you know, these are bones. Start getting gray and yellow and they start falling out. And Our body replaces our bones every seven years. So if you're kind of tired of yourself, <laughs> just know that like in a couple of weeks you'll be like this new person, your skin, your liver, and your stomach. And it's like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm done with that old part of myself. Or eyebrows. Eyebrows. We have about 450 hairs in our eyebrows. I haven't counted, but that's apparently right. And we grow them every three to five months. Some of us seem to grow them too much, and they just get too long. Or the head, the hair in our head, you know, replace every two to five years. Or some of us it replaces less and less every year, but so. Just to reflect again on the, on the mystery of the body, to take care of this body. And if this is getting you down, know that um, it takes 43 muscles to frown and only 17 to smile. So if you want to be less tired at the end of the day, you have to smile more. And if you frown a lot, after 200,000 frowns, you get a permanent frown, frown line. So you can count your frown lines. <laughs> and you can know how many times you've been frowning. <laughs> it runs into a few million, I think. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh talks a lot about smiling. He, he often refers to this piece of data that you know, it takes more effort to frown than to smile. You know, practice smiling. He talks about breathing in, breathing out, and smiling. Not as a denial or as a repudiation of suffering, but just as an openness, an invitation to that. So mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of the breath. Here this is from Robert Hall, one of the teachers here at Spirit Rock, who wisely retired down to Todos Santos in Mexico. Well I hope he's been safe from the flu. Um, 
He says, every once in a while, you remember to shift your attention to your breathing, or you notice a bird's song, or you notice the quality of light in the room or the sunshine on the grass. Then something changes. For a moment, you awaken into the present and appreciate your life. Happiness becomes possible once more. Finally, there is nothing left to do but just to breathe and feel the, de- the breathing deep inside, rising and falling. <coughs> Maybe you notice how alive you, are, you feel in between breaths. So, you know, we spend this so much time running and rushing and thinking, and, you know, we, we're constantly saying up here, takes a moment to stop, to, to come back, to feel, to sense. You know, we have, we, we have all, all that we have with, we, that we need within us to return to presence, to peace, to happiness. This is from Thich Nhat Hanh about breathing. He says, breathing in and breathing out consciously helps you become your best and calm, fresh and solid, clear and free and able self, able to enjoy the present moment as the best moment of your life. So how many of us are enjoying this moment as the best moment of our lives or thinking, God, only when I get home, you know, (laughs) that's going to be the best moment of my life. When I get, you know, go down to the coffee store and get a, you know, coffee because I'm really tired or when when I get to lie in my bed and pull the covers up around me, that's going to be the best moment, you know. When I get home and see my sweetheart, that's going to be the best moment. Or when I get to my vacation in July, that's going to be the best moment. You know, when it stops raining, it's going to be the best moment. You know, when my body stops aching, it's going to be the best moment. So how many times do we postpone the best moment? The best moment, is the only moment is this moment. There's no other moment. Any other moment is a complete fantasy, projection, an illusion. So, you know, so I've been talking a lot about mindfulness of the body, mystery of the body, body and breath, but it's not so easy to be in our bodies. You know, we're not trained to be in our bodies unless you've had a particular sports training or a martial arts training. You know, we're trained mostly to think, to value our mind and our, capa- and our intellect. And there's a lot of discomfort when, we, when, we, when we're in our bodies, you know, you know aching, tiredness, hunger, agitation, you know, we feel a lot of uncomfortable feelings. So who wants to be in the body sometimes? You know, when we, you know, Good Housekeeping magazine reported that there were 84 unpleasant sensations in the body, which is why you should all be just keep really busy doing your housework. <laughs> so you don't have to feel. I have no idea why they had this article on 84 unpleasant sensations, but I was, I, was, I was struck by how many there were. Who would have thought? You know, I got Bell's palsy last fall um, out of the blue. It's one of those things you get out of the blue, and um, you know, the side of my face went numb and couldn't eat properly, and I would dribble when I would drink my tea and kind of had to move my food to the other side of my mouth because it wouldn't work and it was kind of funny talking and it was challenging to be in the body 
you know, challenging to hang, you know, this, we get these things, you know, that was, that was mild, you know, I had it for four, six weeks or something, and, but often we get much more intense uh, physical ailments and injuries, and, and, uh, and so there's a, a lot of reasons why we don't want to be in our body, you know, we, when it's painful, when it's difficult, and, and we get afraid when our body gets, you know, when it's contracted, I didn't, I, I noticed, I watched my mind, you know, I, I wasn't so much bothered by my face looking funny because I'm sort of used to my face looking a bit funny, but um, I was more bothered by the fact that I didn't want to be having to dribble every time I, you know, go out, you know, and have a cup of tea with somebody, and you know, um, and so the, this idea of the future came in, you know, like, oh, what if this stays forever? Because it can, you know, some people, seven, eight percent of Bell's palsy folks, get it permanently. Um, and I also, but it also made me feel tremendous gratitude, and appreciation for the body. You know, mostly, mostly the body functions quite well. You know, it's amazing all the, you know, like this swine flu that's going around or whatever, whatever the latest illness is. You know, it's amazing. And I was thinking, it's amazing we don't get more sick than we do. You know, there's just so many germs. There's one piece of great fact I didn't mention. This 32,000 pieces of bacteria live on every square inch of your skin. And you thought you were clean. <laughs> Everyone's going to be you know, getting the bacterial soap, you know, somebody, you know. And that's where they live. They, they live there and they, they breed there and they die there. And they have their offspring there. And they're mating, you know. It's hard to sleep at night sometimes. Anyhow. So the body asks, you know, when it gets sick, when it gets ill, when it gets challenged, it gets. It asks, you know, how do we, can we bring our love, can we bring our acceptance, can we bring our awareness, even when it's difficult? The reason I asked you to do this meditation at the end of bringing your attention to something difficult was to see, you know, the body is a great teacher, it's a great uh, challenge, you know. How do we stay present when our body's hurting, when we've got colds or flu or aches or injuries or, you know, compromised immune systems or fatigue issues or aging issues or whatever, you know, our particular story is. This is from uh, Byron Katie. So she says, I was sitting once with a friend who had a large, who had a huge tumor and the doctors had given her just a few weeks to live. As I was leaving her bedside, she said, I love you, Byron Katie. And I said, this is Byron Katie speaking, no you don't. You can't love me until you love your tumor. Every concept that you put onto your tumor, you'll eventually put that onto me. The first time I don't give you what you want or threaten what you believe, you'll put that concept onto me. Now this this might sound harsh, but my friend had asked me to always tell her the truth. The tears in her eyes were tears of gratitude, she said. So sometimes we're given these very radical things you know, to love, to encompass, to accommodate, to grow around, to, to absorb. There's this great line that goes, Your body is a temple, but only if you treat it like one. Mm-hmm. Your body is a temple. You know, it's often thrown around, your body is a temple, and you'll love the temple. But only if you treat it like one. Do you treat your body like a temple? 
It's a great question. What's your relationship to your body? Do you override it? Do you ignore it? Do you treat it as a servant? Do you treat it as an adversary? Do you take it for granted? Do you have sickness amnesia? You know, it's interesting teaching these yoga teachers. I, I, I think probably every single yoga teacher there had gotten injured doing yoga. <laughs> you know, because we push, we override, we try too hard. You know, we, we you know, and, uh, we, and then we learn. The Buddha said, "Our body is precious. It is a vehicle for awakening. Treat it with care. Our body is precious. A vehicle for awakening." Treat it with care. This is a slightly different way of putting it. This is from Mary Oliver, a well-known poem. She says, You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees. You do not have to for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. What would it mean to let the animal body love what it loves? What does that mean? It's a great koan. A koan is one of those questions we have to wrestle with. So the body teaches many, many things. I'm running out of time. I want to read this quote that I just found that I that made me quite chuckle. Um, prior to giving this talk. Um, one of the things it teaches us about humility, you know, about getting old and getting sick. And uh, this is from the poet Hafez. It's called The Clay Bowl's Destiny. The clay bowl being us. The ship you are riding on, look where it is heading. Your body's port is the graveyard. Realizing the destiny of each clay bowl tossed into the sky with no one to catch it, I finally accepted the beloved's kind offer to enroll in his sublime, in his sublime ball-busting course of spirit love. The ship you are riding on, look where it is heading. Your body's port is the graveyard. Realizing the destiny of each bowl tossed into the sky with no one to catch it, I finally accepted the beloved's kind offer to enroll in, in his sublime ball-busting course of spirit love. So, maybe that's enough words for this evening. So, um, just to encourage you, as I've been doing all the evening, to um, really pay attention to your relationship to your body. Do you relate to it as an obstacle, as a temple, as a support, as an ally, as a friend? Do you learn from it? Is it your teacher? Is it your adversary? Can it be your support for mindfulness? Can it be your anchor, your steady anchor as you walk through the mall? You know, as you wash your hands in the bathroom, as you chop your carrots, you know, as you stroke your children's hair, as you lie in bed and feel the cool sheets on your skin, can that be your support, your ongoing support for inhabiting the present moment?
So thank you for your attention. So uh, next week uh, there won't be any dinner and I will be here. Um, we would really appreciate your help in um, helping us, helping the, the uh, volunteers clean up. Oh, and I have one announcement. Um, the, the singing the Dharma that I mentioned uh, is not this Saturday. It's Saturday, May 16th from 6.30 to 9. So have a wonderful week. See you next week. Enjoy the rain and the sunshine and your bodies. Maybe somebody else's. Who knows? <laughs> Same principles apply. Our body is a temple. Everybody else's body is a temple. Treat them all with respect. <laughs>